Well, no doubt, if you have been here for any period of time, you have grown to uh, love and appreciate this church. And as a matter of fact, we had a group of young people that love and appreciate this church so much, they spent the entire night, Friday night, playing hide and seek. And uh, I had the uh, glorious opportunity to chaperone that event. And good heavens, I don't bounce back as fast as I used to. Staying up all night, what was I thinking? How irresponsible. It was, it was a great time. The uh, challenge is, uh, if uh, you are a fellow allergy sufferer, I had thought I had dodged it, because usually by the end of September, I, I, it's fighting me. So uh, over the last day or two, uh, they've come knocking on my door and said, hey, remember us? We want to come have a party with you in your sinuses. So uh, I feel a little under the weather here this morning, and so hence my uh, trusted associate here by my side. I, I trust and pray that the weakness of my voice will not be a distraction for what we have gathered here today for. When we talk about the issue of accountability, the word accountability has a really interesting history. It kind of really emerged out of the um, formation of organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous, who if someone's going to make a substantive life change, they need, they need a flesh and blood person to come alongside them to provide encouragement. Uh, and encouragement is positive, and accountability is kind of negative. It's like, all right, have you done anything that you really haven't needed to do, you know, that's not in line with what you're, the changes that you're trying to make. And so uh, about the 70s or the 80s, uh, that language started finding its way into the church, and so it may have been your experience to have a thing called an accountability partner, someone who is helping you walk alongside you in your discipleship to do the things that you know that you're supposed to do and to say no to the things that you're not supposed to. Here's the thing that's really interesting. Um, I, I think as Christians, if we can be honest, we both love accountability because we know that we need it, and we hate it because we know that we are going to be accountable for living up to a certain standard. And so one of my favorite little sets of accountability questions goes through seven or eight things about have you spent time in the Word? Are you um, leading your family well to treasure Christ in their hearts? And then the very last question is, have you lied to us on any of the responses? <laughs> because there's that nature in which we kind of, we shirk responsibility. And we know that accountability is a glorious thing, but just as the little video talked about with our giving, we're busy. There's bills to pay, there's job obligations, there's soccer games and baseball and cheerleading and, you know, soccer mom stuff that you've got to deal with. And then on top of that, we have issues related to our discipleship. The truth is, you can even lie on that ninth question. Have you lied about any of your responses? <clears throat> but there will come a day in which every person, not just believers, every person will stand accountable to God. If God truly is the creator, he is sovereign, then he has the right to be our judge. And the Bible's very clear that there will come a time uh, when uh, the death statistic is still that one out of every one person dies. The mortality rate is still 100%. And you may dodge it temporarily, but it, you will, it will not miss you forever. And there comes a time after our death uh, where we will stand before God in judgment. And so as we continue in our series, talking about the end of the world as we know it, Jesus' teachings on the end times, he enters into a section in Matthew 25 where he uses multiple parables to talk about how best do we be prepared for when Jesus returns. Today we're going to have a very uh, look at a very simple uh, parable with three simple points, but some really powerful conclusions about how we are supposed to live in preparation for that time. And it's the parable of the talents. You have probably heard this before. It may even be one of your favorite parables that Jesus teaches on. And the challenge with it is that we have reduced the parable of the talents to the annual church stewardship sermon. 
It has something to do about giving, and then we make it all kind of front-loaded with its application to be about giving or about tithing. The challenge is that its application is much broader than that. Uh, Yes, an important way for you to be accountable is what do you do with the portion of financial resources that God entrusts to you? But the question is really ranging into every nook and cranny of your life and every crevice. It is life stewardship. And so we'll see this as we walk through um, our passage this morning. The scriptures will be on the screen. And if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible in front of you, it'll be page 702. And if you don't have your own copy of the Scriptures, I know that there are free apps that you can download for your phone. But if you'd like a hard copy, then please take the one that's in the Pew back in front of you. That would be uh, uh, our gift to you for being with us. I'll begin in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 25, which really kind of introduces this whole passage. It says this, For it, the kingdom of heaven, is what Jesus is referring to, for it is just like a man in He's an exceedingly rich man, as we'll see in just a second. It's like a rich man going on a journey. He called his own slaves and turned over his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another he gave two talents, and to another one talent, to each according to his ability, and then he went on his journey. Our first point this morning is that the master entrusts his servants with great things. He entrusts his servants with great things. And so the story, the analogy that Jesus uses, this is not a historical person, it's a story. It's a parable. Is that you have this master, this rich man, who goes on a journey, calls forth three of his servants, gives them his financial resources, and expects them to use that faithfully. Now when we use the word talent, which is specifically what the master entrusts to the servant, uh, to the servants, we, um, we get a little confused with that because we have television shows like The Voice and America's Got Talent. And we think it has something to do with, you know, river dancing or, you know, swallowing swords, breathing fire, doing magic tricks. Um, and yes, those are certainly, in our English language, those are talents. Those are abilities. You know, um, Alex just prayed for us. And, you know, the ability to lead in worship by playing a musical instrument, that's, that's not a talent that I have. Uh, just like he said, like me, he shares the ability to sing in public. Um, <clears throat> I sing just not in front of people. Uh, I, I sing solo, solo that you can't hear me. So um, I like it that way, um, and you do too, so trust me. When we talk about talents from a biblical perspective, talents are also used in two different ways. Today, when we talk about talents, we're talking about gifts or abilities. Talents in New Testament times really refer to two different things. One, they were a unit of weight measurement. And so a talent was super heavy. A talent would be, I don't know, maybe equivalent to like a ton. I mean, we're, t- we're talking a significant measurement. Um, it wouldn't be a ton. It'd probably be closer to 500 pounds, but it's a significant unit of measurement. So we don't have anything, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know anything beyond a pound that we could really compare it to. A uh, ton would be kind of the next comparable thing, but it was some, somewhere between there. It's also used as a unit of money. So when we talk about units of money, specifically coinage, we have nickels, pennies, we have dimes, we've got quarters, silver dollars, half dollars. And so a talent was a unit of, of money. But a talent as a coin was not something you could fit in your pocket. Because a talent was widely assumed uh, from a financial standpoint, if we tried to put it in modern day terms, uh, one talent was roughly the equivalent of 20 years wages. So what do you make? Don't, don't answer that out loud. Multiply that by 20, and that would be what this is. And so if we say an average income for Rock Hills, somewhere between forty-four and $48,000, 
you multiply that by 20, that would be one talent. This is a pretty significant amount of money that he's entrusting to his servants, right? Are you with me? He gave somebody five talents. That's 100 years of your salary. He gave somebody two talents. That's 40 years of your salary. He gave somebody one talent. That's 20 years of salary. So how many of you would like, you don't need five. You would just like one talent this morning. And so if you'll see Chris Hefner at the end of the service, Chris is going to be in the lobby, and you can pick your talents up from him. Thank you, Chris. Using his gifts to bless everybody. That's amen. We love it. So he is uh, distributing these things. But did you see how he distributed them? Now, he's the master, and he has servants that work for him. He can distribute them however he wants. But does it sound a tad bit unfair that he gives one guy five, he gives one guy two, and he gives one guy one? I mean, if you're a financial investor, you know, you're trying to save up for your retirement, and you have three guys that you like, who are you going to give the most money to? The one that you trust the most, that's, that's the best. And that's what he says. It says specifically that he gave to them each according to their own ability. Is that a bad thing? No. We, we tend to all be a little communistic in saying, you know, he needs to give it out equally to everyone. That's terrible financial advice. You know, to give it to the guy who's mediocre as well as the guy, he, he's diversified his um, investments, but he's also put the lion's share of his investments with the guy that he thinks is going to do the best. That's called wisdom. You do that with your finances, this master is doing the same with his. It's an amazing thing. <clears throat> now, the truth is, we've all been given talents. Um, and we're not talking specifically money, though your money does come from God. We're not talking specifically about musical ability. But I want you to listen to this verse, 1 Peter 4.10. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, based on the gift. And when it says gift, it's not talking about spiritual gift. It's talking about something that you have received. Based upon what you have received, use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of God. So here's the question for you. What have you received? What have you received? <clears throat> what do you have to work with that wasn't given to you? Think about that carefully for a second. Because you didn't create your own personality. You didn't create yourself. Everything that you have was given to you. Life and breath and everything. God created your personality. Your sense of humor that you think is so wonderful that nobody else just seems to get, God gave that to you. Um, your, your just natural uh, way of looking at circumstances and the, the way that you see life, everything that you have is given to you as a gift. So whatever you have received in all of its glory, or maybe you don't feel like it's all that glorious and all of it's just kind of natural everydayness, use that to serve others as managers of what it, they call the grace of God. You see, we tend to think of the things that God has given us as like specific things. Well, he, he's given me this grace. Everything that he has given is gracious. It is wonderful. He owns it all, and he has given it to you. I love the way J.C. Ryle, uh, an old uh, British Puritan, uh, kind of said it. Listen to this quote. Anything by which we serve God is a talent. Our gifts, our influence, our money, our knowledge, our health, our strength, our time, our senses, our reason, our intellect, our memory, our affection, our privileges as members of Christ's church, our advantages as possessors of the Bible, all, every single one of them, are talents. I think if we stop to consider it for just a second, we have received far more than five talents. 
everything that you have is something that, that the master expects for you to use for his purposes. He has given you great things. And we have become such a secular society that the only things that we think are great are the things that we see on TV. Wealth or incredible physical prowess. So rich people and athletes, they're given great things. The rest of us are given humdrum things. That is not a biblical way of looking at life. God has given you great things. The question is whether you have the eyes of faith to see how absolutely gracious God has been at giving you everything. So when we talk about talents, this is not just an issue of financial stewardship, though, as we just talked about, financial stewardship is a really important thing. It teaches us to trust God. It's not just paying the power bill. It's not just something that you're doing for someone else. When you give, you're doing something for yourself as well. It is a spiritual discipline that brings particular blessings. But it's not just your money. It's your time. It's your temperament. It's your opportunities. Everything belongs to God, and He entrusts you with just a little bitty portion of His resources. He gives it to you. He knows your capacities because He's going to give according to your abilities. He knows your personality. He knows your circumstances. And here is where the fun comes in growing up in Christ. God has wired every single one of us differently. And so the challenge is to figure out how you're wired and how you do what 1 Peter 4.10 does. How do you use those things that you've received to serve God and serve others as managers of the grace of God? And so it, it goes without saying <clears throat> that when we talk about people, God doesn't work on the cookie-cutter principle. You know, we, we tend to group people into groups. Well, that's that group and that's that group. No, 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 no. There are no two people that are fully alike. I mean, there is the principle that birds of a feather flock together, but still, there ain't no two birds that have the same fingerprints. They don't have the same personality. And, and the fun is figuring out how God has wired us and discovering with great joy how do we employ that in serving God and others. God has indeed given us great things. And if, if the only point of application that you get this morning is to walk out of here humbled and grateful to God at the great talents with which he's entrusted you, then mission accomplished. To think for just a second that you have received everything that you have is truly indeed a humbling thing to think about. The story continues in verses 16 through 18, and our second point is that servants should, faith, should labor faithfully in the master's absence. Servants should labor faithfully in the master's absence. The first point was really about the master and that he's given us great things. But the master doesn't really play a very uh, in-the-forefront role in the story. He disappears. He's there for the first two verses, and he gives stuff away, and then he leaves. And we don't know how long he leaves for. It's for a long period of time. <clears throat> but the master leaves. And so he gives his resources to his slaves and expects them to labor faithfully. To belabor the point, nothing we work with is our own. Even if you work in a manufacturing job where you make things out of wood or make things out of metal, make things out of plastic, you are working with pre-existing material. Nothing we work with is our own. We may fashion something that is pre-existing, but we have been entrusted with another person's property. We are simply stewards. And so when we think about laboring faithfully for the master, here's the thing. What an amazing thing that we have something to work with. Because there's a biblical principle here that we have to keep in mind that receiving precedes doing. Okay, you get that? Receiving precedes doing. If you don't receive anything, you have nothing to work with. But if you've received something, then you have the opportunity to do. Now, here's, here's the point. 
Here's the point. Um, do we have anybody here that would be a self-confessed busybody? Is there anybody? That's not a bad thing. Like, churches love busybodies. Being busybody is a good thing. I'm not meaning anything uh, like negative. Sometimes busybody could be <clears throat> construed as a negative thing. There is a danger with being a busybody. Is that you're so focused on your doing that you forget that the things that you get to do are because you have received. Kids, you can't ride a bike if you don't get it for Christmas. You know, so you can fantasize about it, but you have to receive. And so for my busybody friends, okay, in love, focus on this point. It will humble you. And there are some of you who have the capacity to be busybodies because maybe God has entrusted you with more. Maybe more free time, maybe more resources. Uh, but, but don't be secular in your busybodiness, just I need something to fill up my time. Be worshipful in your busybodiness, recognizing that you have the ability to do because you have received. That's beautiful. That's a very simple truth, but it's, it's very important. Here's the thing that I think is amazing. Again, the master is really not in the picture, but his interests depend upon the servant's honesty and faithfulness. He's going away. He's entrusting his estate uh, to these servants, and you go, um, what's the master doing? He's on like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous vacation. He's taking a tour of the Aegean. I don't know what he's doing. He's gone on a long trip. And like he expects his portfolio to increase. And the only way, he's spending money on the trip. The only way his estate is going to grow is based upon the servant's work. So here's the thing that I think is awesome. No matter what you do, if you're using your gifts, talents, opportunities, circumstances for the glory of God, your work matters. It matters. God is exercising the expansion of his kingdom through his servant's faithful work. And that's not just church work. That's the work that you do nine to five as you take the gospel with you to work. So last week, as we talk about this idea of laboring faithfully, last week we talked about the parable of the ten virgins, the, the five wise and the five foolish. And we saw that our watchfulness about the end times it, it requires us to be prepared. There were the five uh, wise virgins that were prepared when the wedding came. There were the five foolish that were not prepared. And so we talked very specifically about preparation, being prepared. This week shows that our watchfulness is not just manifested in our preparation, but also in the performance of duty. Not just being prepared to receive the talents, but then doing something. And so the way that I phrase this is that preparedness does not mean passivity, but activity. Preparedness does not mean passivity, but activity. We don't sit around in a circle singing kumbaya, looking at our belly buttons, waiting for Jesus to come back. There are some people that have done that. You know, there was a whole order of monks that created poles. They were called the pole sitters. So it looks like a little totem pole. And they would climb up on the uh, totem pole and they would sit there waiting for Jesus to get back. Perhaps a little strange, pious, they were waiting. But they didn't do anything. They were inactive. That's not what Jesus is calling us to, to be monks sitting on poles. He's calling us to work. And here's what I love, is when we see the work of the servants, we see something that is really beautiful. Look with me at verses 16 through 18. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah, 16 through 18. The scriptures say this. <clears throat> Immediately the man who had received five talents went. He put them to work and he earned five more. 
In the same way, the man with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. Now, there's a chart, and I've gotten out of way, so sorry about that, Keith, but I, I recognize it. You'll forgive me later, brother. There's a chart here that I want you to see, and uh, I want you to see something about the first two servants. When we talk about um, the way that they labored, all of the verbs that are used for their work are very aggressive, very assertive. It says that they went out, they put it to work, and that they won or earned five more. There was this, what's the word that I use? This happy eagerness to get to work. The master gives them the money, and they're like, when are you going to go? When are you going to go? When are you going to go? So they can get to work. They're ready to do it. And so they go out, they went out, they put the money to work, they won or earned, all very aggressive. They're not introspective, they're active. How long was the master gone? We don't know. And perhaps he could have been gone for many years, and it's summed up in these three verses. The master entrusted them, and he left. The point is this, while we wait, we work, because saving faith is serving faith. If you don't serve and you claim to know Christ, there is something that is defective in your faith. We are saved from sin. We are saved to serve. And if God has gloriously covered you by the blood of Jesus, trust me, you want to serve. If you don't, then there are other issues perhaps that we need to talk about. Because saving faith is serving faith. Notice the contrast with the third worker when we talk about how he has worked. All of the verbs that are used for him are regressive. So for the first two, it is aggressive. It is active. For the second, it's very passive and regressive. He didn't go out. He went away. He didn't put it to work. He dug a hole. He didn't win or earn anything. He hid his master's money. The expectation is that when the master entrusts us with his resources, just a portion, we are to labor, labor faithfully in his absence. That brings us to our third and final point, <clears throat> that faithful servants eagerly anticipate accountability. Faithful servants eagerly anticipate accountability. Listen to verses 19, <clears throat> 19 through 30. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached, presented five more talents, and said, Master, you gave me five talents. Look, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Then the man with two talents also approached, and he said, Master, you gave me two talents. Look, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. Verse 24, Then the man who had received one talent also approached. And he said, Master, I know you. You're a difficult man. You're very hard. Reaping where you haven't sown and gathering where you haven't scattered seed. So I was afraid. And I went off and I hid your talent in the ground. Look, you have what is yours. But his master replied to him, You evil, lazy slave. If you knew that I reap where I haven't sown and gather where I haven't scattered, then you should have deposited my money with the bankers. And when I returned, I would have received my money back at least with some interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he, who, and he will have more than enough. But from the one who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And throw this good-for-nothing slave into the outer darkness, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. <clears throat> I've said for this last point that 
faithful servants eagerly anticipate accountability. And it seems to me that the predominant emotion that, even for believers, that surrounds the return of Christ is one of fear and trepidation. And that, that's, I don't think that that's biblical. I mean, for us, whose sins have been covered by the blood of Christ, that reunion will be a glorious thing. I want you to think about this. How many of you, uh, some of you I know travel for work, but uh, some circumstance, whether it's uh, illness in the family, um, caring for a loved one, work requiring you to travel, how many of you are required to be away from your spouse for extended periods of time? Anybody? Okay, one brave hand. The buses will wait. Um, y'all are liars. I know there's more of you that travel. How do you, how do you think about the reunion with your family? Is it something to be dreaded? Oh no, it's almost Friday and I'm going back to Rock Hill. Going to have to be reunited with my family. No, that's foolish. It's, it's joyful. As a matter of fact, I, I used to have to travel way more than I think any human being should have to when I worked for the seminary. And uh, sometimes they would send me on international trips. I'd be gone for two or three weeks at a time. And, and, and the, when you're out of cell phone range... Oh my goodness, it feels like you're gone for an eon. It's like a millennium. You know, I don't have the opportunity to check in every day because I want to check in with my family every day. And so I'll walk through, you know, the Singapore airport, and it, for all intents and purposes, it's an ugly stuffed animal, but I think my daughter's going to love it. You know, and so what do I do? I buy it because I'm thinking of her, and I buy what I think is extraordinarily beautiful and exotic jewelry that my wife cannot find anywhere. And I come home and I get a, gee, thanks, honey. Um, I can't return it. <laughs> I'm not going back to the Shanghai airport to return this beautiful thing. Why, why do we do that? Because we cannot wait to be reunited with the people that we love. In that moment, you've seen it at the airport when there's a soldier coming out home from deployment and that family is reunited. It's like a little snapshot of heaven. It's just beautiful. You're home. You're with the people that you care about and yet we think that finally being united with our Lord is going to be a terrible and tragic thing? Not for us. Not for us. The truth is how the day of reckoning will go for you will be based upon your reaction to your responsibility. How the day of reckoning will go for you will be based upon your reaction to your responsibility. And why do I say that? Did you see how the three servants responded to the accountability that the master had entrusted them with? The first two are identical. They are bubbling over with excitement. They can't wait for the master to come back because they have something for show and tell. <laughs> they can't wait. Is it my turn? Ooh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. But look at verse 20. I love the way that the language is used here. It says the master's coming back after a long time. The man who received five talents, he approached. He didn't wait to be summoned. He's like... Is he in yet? Is he, is he in yet? Is he here yet? Is he here yet? And then he approached, he presented five more talents, and he said, Master, five you gave me. Behold, five more. That's literally the language. It, it's, it's construed in such a way to put the exclamation in the middle of the sentence. Five you gave. Looky, looky. Five more. He's excited. He's encouraged. He knows he has done well, and he is glad to present this to the master, not because he gets a pay raise, because it was the thing he was expected to do. And here's the truth. How you work as a Christian tells two very important things about you. It is a chance for you to showcase your character, 
and it is a chance to say how high or how low you think of Jesus. Jesus is what we do in his absence with the talents that he has entrusted to us is a million-dollar opportunity to show what we really think about him. And if serving him is a privilege, we can't wait for him to come back to say, look at what you have given me the ability to do. Shows our character because we work hard in his absence. We don't need a manager looking over our shoulder telling us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. It's interesting that both the first and the second servant receive the exact same commendation and reward. I mean, it's almost like there's a script from the master. Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. And regardless of the amount that each of the first two servants did, the first servant did twice as much as the second servant. Did you get that? Two turned to four, five turned to ten. What do you want for your stock investments? You want four or do you want ten? I want ten. I want ten. And yet both servants receive the exact same commendation and reward. What does this show us about the master? That he's not concerned about the amount, but he is concerned about the motive and the effort. There is a way that you can serve God that your motive is for self-glorification and not for him. That your effort is so that people think much of you and not much of your master. And he says, I'm not so much concerned about the amount as I am about the motive and the effort and how you work demonstrate what demonstrates what your motive and effort is. We turn to the third servant. This guy has nothing for show and tell. So what does he do? He prepares a little speech. He, he's got a little prepared speech. And he, like the others, has the similar opportunity to demonstrate his character and his regard for his master. And it's very different. Because for this man, even though he's in within the household of the master, there is absolutely no stewardship. He buried what he had. And there is a contemptuous disregard for the master. This is a person who assumes because of proximity that he is safe because he's in the master's household, but he is lazy and he receives no commendation. Instead, he receives condemnation. And to be really clear, when, he talks, when the master talks about taking away what he has and casting him into the place for the hypocrites and the place of outer darkness and the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth, that is a metaphor for biblical judgment, for the place that is reserved for the devil and his angels. And this person who assumes, hey, because I'm on the payroll, I'm okay, it is a fatal assumption that he makes because he is cast into the place of judgment. He's not a prodigal spending the money on immoral and selfish means, but he is one who bears secret and contemptuous thoughts of his master that are exposed when the accountability happens. It's interesting in his speech, he kind of implies that it's the master's fault that he has done what he's done. Because he says, I know that you're a hard man and I don't want to risk anything, so I just buried it. And it's, it's, it's very um, noteworthy to note that the master doesn't appear to be a hard man at all. In the accommodation that he gave to the first and the second, the guy that only produced four, now four is still a lot of money, the guy that produced four got the same commendation as the guy that produced 10. Is there anywhere in life that you can produce 60% less and still receive the same commendation? No, only with God, who looks at our hearts. And then he, <clears throat> he, the third servant calls the man hard and difficult, 
And yet, even in the master's response to the third guy, he doesn't expect the third guy to produce 10 talents, doesn't even expect him to produce four talents. The only thing, he would have been happy with simple interest. Bro, when I left, if the very next day you would have just taken it to the bank and deposited it to bear interest for my journey and never did anything else, you didn't work hard, you didn't even make the money grow except for depositing in the bank, I would have been okay with that. What's the point? God will judge you based on your ability. He's not going to take you and compare you to who you think is a super Christian, you know, who's winning souls every day and go, well, you know, no, no. We should all have the motive and the effort to do those kinds of things, but we're judged according to our ability. He's just saying, do something with your talent. Just don't do nothing. Last week in the parable of the virgins, the foolish virgins thought the work of being prepared was so light and not challenging that they just kind of overlooked it. Here, this third slave thought the work was too hard, and he dismissed it. In both cases, the foolish virgins and the wicked servant are condemned for their inactivity. That brings us to just a couple conclusions that I think we have to wrestle with from this passage. The first is this. A Christian who is no use to anyone is not pleasing to the Lord. I think we could even say that more stridently. A supposed Christian who is of no use to anyone may indeed not be a Christian at all. Well, it could be that they're badly instructed, that they've never been discipled, but you cannot continue in this kind of lifestyle that has no desire to live for the Lord. I don't know how we've gotten to the point where our proclamation of the gospel has just been a deal for you. Hey, sign on the dotted line here and get eternal life for you. 1 Peter 4.10 says if we have that eternal life, we will be good for others and we will be good for God. And we've divorced the responsibilities of the gospel from the privileges of the gospel. A Christian who is no use to anyone is not pleasing to the Lord. And so in our hearts having a desire to be pleasing to the Lord, whether He comes immediately or whether He delays, we have to ask ourselves the question, are we using the resources that we have been entrusted with, with joy and for the honor of the God who freely gives us all things? We don't have a contract with God. He's not obligated to do anything for us, but by His grace He does. And are we using those resources joyfully for His honor. Are you serving God and others? Or are you just so busy you're just looking out for number one? His return certainly could be immediate, so we have to be prepared. His return could be delayed, and so we have to work while we wait. If you've ever been on crutches or you've ever had a cast, you are fully aware that unused muscles will atrophy. You break that cast off and your arm looks like a toothpick. You're afraid that if you sneeze, it's going to break. It's just pathetic looking. It's a little spaghetti straw of what it used to be. And you're like, oh my goodness. I don't even want to go to the beach and let them see my little, my, my little mini arm over here. I've got to pump it up. I've got to work it out. Unused muscles atrophy. Unfruitful trees. The only thing they're good for is firewood. Unused talents. 
according to this parable, damn you to hell. And God has given it to you for you to use and to figure out how to use it in a way that makes sense to you, that uses your personality. He doesn't say, I need you to be like this person or like your Sunday school teacher or like your deacon or like your pastor. He needs you to be you. You fill a role that only you can fill in the kingdom of God. And when the Bible talks about the church being a body, the body needs every part to work. So there's no desire for some kind of macabre, sad, somber conclusion to this parable. But Jesus is warning us about how we use our talents because he is trying to save people from messed up priorities that lead to messed up lives and result in eternally sad eternities. That's his desire. And we conclude this message in a way that I think Jesus would encourage us to if he was here physically himself. As you examine your life, will you be commended? Well done, good and faithful servant. Or will you be condemned? We love it. And there was not a whole lot of stomping. I don't have the energy to stomp around. But we love hellfire and brimstone sermons when they're dealing with those people. And Jesus says, let judgment begin with the house of God. And almost every parable of judgment that God talks about is for people on the inside who are assuming their privileges. Today, my urgent admonition for you would be to not assume that everything is right with you because you prayed a prayer 25 years ago. How are you serving now? And if this whole idea of a relationship with Christ, serving actively this master, if that's a question for you, we would love the opportunity to speak with you after the service. We don't want a relationship with God to seem like this ephemeral thing that you're always grasping at because the Bible says that we can know that we have a right relationship with God. So don't assume that you're the best spiritual counsel that you're ever going to get. You need some counsel from God's word to encourage you in what it means to turn into trust in Jesus. But today, if you are a believer, I pray that if you recognize that maybe you're not serving with the kind of intentionality that you need to serve, that as we sing our song of response today, that while we sing, that song can be a prayer for you in repentance to God, asking for him to help you serve rightly. Would you pray with me, please? Father, there is nothing that we have that we have not received. And that is an immensely liberating uh, truth, but it is also an incredibly humbling truth. Father, my prayer today is that you help us to use the gifts that you have given us in a way that makes you proud. That you help us to play with the toys that you have given us, that we make good use of them, and that we make you glad with how we labor. Uh, You have given us all a significant responsibility to use all that we have and all that we are for the glory of God and for the good of others. Father, today I pray that as you woo our hearts and you cause us to examine our lives in light of eternity, that you will help us to do it, that your spirit will illumine the parts of our life that we try to hide, the things in our life that we try to deny, but in our moments of softness and quietness, we are ready to fully admit to you. So, Father, allow faith to bloom in our hearts and our souls and our wills that we will determine by the power of Christ that works within us to labor in such a way that we will be commended on that day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.